This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Mike Ladd with you for the History Lesson. The Love Day Trilogy is a series based on the stories of three intriguing and very different characters who had one thing in common. They were all at Love Day internment camp in the South Australian Riverland during World War II. Love Day was the largest of the internment camps in Australia. Indeed, I suspect it was the largest internment camp in the Southern Hemisphere in the Second World War. All men? They were all civilians. As they call them, enemy aliens? They were interned there because their countries were at war with Australia. Love Day is not just one camp, it's actually a group of camps. Camp 9, where the Italians were, and Camp 10, where the Germans were, and Camp 14 was opened up and the Japanese were interned there. Men who had been living in Australia when the war broke out, or had been overseas and who were brought to Australia to be interned. Love Day was opened in 1941. It's approximately halfway between Adelaide and Mildura, and uh, it's part of an irrigation settlement. They could irrigate from the Murray. Australian authorities were keen for it to be a productive camp. They wanted to produce vegetables and fruit. And they also had uh, a poultry farm and a piggery. There was a poppy crop that was used for opium production. Uh, Pyrethrum was produced there. And at a time, of course, where supply chains had been disrupted because of the war efforts. Australia became a seed-starved nation because all our exported seed came from America. And once Pearl Harbour was attacked, we no longer had access to merchant shipping. So they started to plant up seed here. They opened up 440 acres. It was huge. We're we're in the middle of the the, uh, camp now. But if you look over into the distance, it went as far as the skyline. Mm. They were very big camps. Historians Rosemary Gower and Peter Monteith will be joining us in the series as we go along. Today, there are only a few buildings left at Love Day. The decaying hall, the remains of the cell blocks and the piggery. Most of the camp has been subsumed by working vineyards and farms. I'm imagining 5,000 internees working in this landscape guarded by 1,500 military personnel. That's 6,500 life stories hidden here, and one of them belonged to my grandfather, Alfred Giles, an army chaplain who conducted the peace service at the Love Day Hall. But I don't want to make this series a general history of the camp. Instead, I want to get to know three individuals whose fates led them here and whose personal stories give us some insight into the times. The first is a man named Oskar Speck. Oskar Speck was a man who travelled from Germany to Australia in the 1930s by kayak, a voyage that took 30,000 
kilometres by paddle and sail, and it took seven years. But that was just the beginning of the story. That's Penny Cuthbert, who was a curator at the National Maritime Museum in Sydney. Speck was born in 1907 in a village near Hamburg. Things were difficult in Germany at the time. He was growing up in the years after the First World War and he was forced to leave school at the age of 14 and, as a young man, worked as an electrical contractor and subsequently ran a small factory known as Speck and Gerloff in Altona in Hamburg. And that factory had about 21 employees. Ich hatte keine Idee, dass ich nach Australien fahren würde oder jemals nach Australien fahren würde. Aber ich nahm mein Faltboot, fuhr nach Ulm und dann die Donau runter bis zur jugoslawischen Grenze. That's the voice of Oskar Speck, who was interviewed by SBS journalist Margot Cuthill. When I met him in 1987, I was immediately in awe of him. There was a strength about him, a straightforwardness. He actually was one of the two most impressive men I've ever met, along with Edmund Hillary, the explorer. And I think this is the league we need to put Oskar Speck in. In 1932, just before the Nazis seized power, economic conditions were terrible in Germany. And the business that Speck was running was forced to close and he found himself, along with millions of other Germans, unemployed. The times in Germany were very catastrophic. As a young man, I had already lost my business. I owned a collapsible boat and was a member of a boating club. All I wanted was to get out of Germany for a while. Seeing the world seemed like a better option, even considering that I had only managed to put together a little bit of money. His fault boat, a collapsible or folding kayak, was named Sonnenschein, Sunshine, and was built for leisurely river paddling. It was made from treated cotton and it had a wood frame so the owner could take it apart and travel with it on the train or the bus. And that was very important, as you can imagine. Not many people had a car then. Speck had heard there was work in the mines in Cyprus and decided he'd try and get there by kayak. And it afforded him the chance to pursue his two passions, which were kayaking and also a long-term interest in geology. From Hamburg, he folded up his kayak and he got the train to a place called Ulm on the Danube River. And that took him through the central European countries, including Austria, Hungary. He passed through cities such as Vienna and Budapest. Ich fuhr also bis zur I paddled the boat down to the Yugoslav-Bulgarian border. Then the Danube started to get boring. And I had heard that nobody had ever sailed down the Vada in Macedonia before. So I decided to paddle to Skopje in Macedonia and become the first. And so he went down the Vada River and eventually got to the Mediterranean coast, to the Greek port of Thessaloniki. And it was from there that the plans changed because he had to suddenly 
develop and learn new skills to sail and paddle this kayak on an ocean as opposed to on a river. Fault boats are not built for the sea. Take just one wave wrong and your boat will spin sideways. You'll turn over and be swamped. Your first capsize on the open ocean will be your last. He had a sail and a front-controlled rudder that was different from other pioneer fault boats. So, you know, he found out he could also use it at sea. But because the boat was so small, Speck had to hug the coast so he could sleep on land each night. And sometimes he had to push on for long paddles between islands. Yeah, he could not sleep on the boat. That would have been terribly dangerous. So sometimes he had to do crossings like, you know, 34 hours. So he island hopped and eventually got to Cyprus. By now I had decided that I did not want that Cyprus job. I wanted much more to make a kayak voyage that would go down in history. It was about now that I first said to myself, why not Australia? It's really there that the idea of a world trip took hold and the idea of wanderlust. Also, another point, the Pioneer Faltwork Company sponsored him with a new fault board whenever he requested a replacement. I think he needed four, provided he would finish the trip in Australia. Back in Germany, Hitler was now brutally establishing his dictatorship. Speck kept paddling away from the fatherland. And then from Cyprus, he did a very long ocean crossing to Syria, and that was two days on the open water without sleeping. Well, there were distances where it just was impossible. When you had to cover 50 or 60 kilometres until you could land again, and he applied to get permission to go through the Suez Canal, and that was denied. So plan B was folding up his kayak and catching a bus which took him to the Euphrates River, and he paddled the Euphrates down to the Persian Gulf. On the long paddle down the Euphrates, Speck passed through places familiar to us from recent wars. Raqqa, Baghdad, Basra. On the Persian Gulf in Iran, he caught a dose of malaria, which plagued him for the rest of the voyage. But after a break, he pushed on. He hugged the coast of Iran through to Pakistan. Near the border of Iran and Pakistan, he went ashore looking for water. Man muss mich gesehen haben, wie ich landete und muss dann das Boot ins Wasser gezogen Somebody must have seen me landing, put my boat into the water and disappeared. There I sat, wearing only my shorts, no passport, no money, no luggage, no boat, nothing. The culprits turned out to be the police themselves, who led him back to his boat after being offered a substantial bribe. It was perfect. Nobody had even opened the splash protection cover. Everything was there. Of course, they waited until I found my wallet and I gave exactly half of my money to the policeman. 
And given that he was always travelling on a shoestring, that must have hurt. Although the Pioneer Fault Boat Company sponsored him with replacement craft, and he had a little bit of financial help from his family, he mostly had to live on his wits, raising money by giving talks and writing articles. He then went down the Malabar coast, the west coast of India, rounded the southernmost cape of India at Kanyakumari, and then went up the east coast, known as the Coromandel Coast. He went round Sri Lanka and then ended up going through the Bay of Bengal. Now, I'm an amateur kayaker and I know 30 k's is a very hard day's paddle. But 30,000? That's mind-bending. When the wind becomes strong, you must take in your tiny sail and paddle. Life becomes a dreary, endless monotony of paddling, arms and shoulders aching and your whole body longing inexpressibly for one thing, sleep. But you must not even doze for one moment. You must be constantly using the rudder, meeting each wave just right. Often, when Speck stopped for the night, it took a long time before he could unlock his hands, which were welded into their gripping posture on the paddle. His kayak, originally a two-seater, had been modified to a single seat, with enough storage to allow him to carry his clothes and maps, food and water. But what exactly did he eat? Most villagers, or almost all the villagers, they were very, very happy to welcome him because, you know, he was a sensation then, and he was their honorary guest. And he stayed with them, and they slaughtered a chicken for him. And also on board, of course, he had coconuts. Then he had tinned sardines and meat in tins, he told me, and most importantly, tinned milk. And this was very, very important for sea kayaking, because you have to paddle and steer. So all you could do for sustenance was sipping the sweet condensed milk. Das war nicht, weil ich glaubte kondensierte Milch ist das beste Essen. And it wasn't because I thought that condensed milk was the best food. But it was possible to eat condensed milk even during storms. By the time he got to Burma in April 1936, Speck had been paddling for four years. His family, tired of sending him money, wanted him to come back to work in the new Germany, now industrialising and rearming as a totalitarian Nazi state. He retorted that making the longest solo kayak paddle in history was doing enough for the new Germany. It would have worked out for him so well to go back. He would have been celebrated. There would have been books made about him. He would have been Goebbels' little pet. 
So he would have done really, really, really very well, courtesy of the regime. So he didn't go back. So anyone saying he was a sympathizer, they just don't know what they're talking about. I'm sorry. Some old photos show him flying a swastika on his kayak, which is always a disturbing image. But Margot Cuthill says there's a simple explanation for that. September 1935, the Nazi flag. Initially, the banner of the Nazi party became the only national flag in Germany, so he sailed under a German flag. He went down through Burma, Myanmar, Thailand, and then the Malay Peninsula to Singapore. From Singapore, he went through the archipelago of Indonesia. Speck may not have sympathised with the Nazis, but he did have to deal with them, as they were the German government at the time. When he reached Jakarta, Troutman, the Nazi district group leader, tried to publicise Speck as a symbol of the new Aryan man. Speck always arranged for talks through German embassies. Troutman, of course, introduced him as a new hero, you know, the new German Herrenrasse master race. But the following fallout between those two men shows that they were, you know, ideologically, they were not on the same page. The thing that was driving him the most was the trip, his own interests, his story. He, I think, felt that Troutman was going to use his story for propaganda and wasn't comfortable about how that was going to be presented. So there was, you know, an initial kind of flirtation or connection there, but it wasn't to last. Speck pushed on through Indonesia, island by island. Over the course of his journey across the world, he'd been given great hospitality from local villagers. But suddenly, something went terribly wrong. He was attacked at night by locals on Lakor Island. He was attacked so badly that his eardrum burst. They were armed with knives and machetes. He had an unloaded pistol and tried to defend himself and describes being overwhelmed, tied up with buffalo hide, and his boat and possessions were plundered. And he also describes being beaten until he was semi-conscious. And I think what happened, he always accepted hospitality because you have to. But one time he just was too tired and then, you know, he was attacked. He was in a bad way, but managed to escape and reach his boat, and he was able to get away because he had a boat and they didn't. And I had a bad luck with the natives. It was a misunderstanding, but the result was that I had to add one and a half years to my journey. I had thought to reach Australia within six months. Instead, it took me more than two years. Over two years, 
The injured Speck had to paddle all the way back to Surabaya to get medical attention. Even worse, when he finally recovered, the Dutch East Indies authorities wouldn't let him travel the southern coast of New Guinea. So he was forced, therefore, to go the long way round New Guinea, so up along the north coast. By now, it was October 1938, and Hitler had annexed Austria and the Sudetenland. Ten months later, having braved huge surf, sharks and crocodiles, Speck rounded the eastern tip of New Guinea. Bill O'Donnell, ten years old at the time, was looking out of the school window on Samurai Island when he saw Speck arrive. It was a very small canoe. I remember it had a, a couple of zippered sections in it that he had some clothes and a few bit of food and that sort of thing, but it was very basic. He stayed with us that night, had dinner. During the evening, Dad tuned into uh, Germany on the, on the shortwave radio and it was the first time I ever heard Hitler make a speech. He was carrying on in full voice, and but Oscar Speck apparently wasn't terribly interested. And then we farewelled him at about 7am the following morning off the beach, uh, heading for Australia. Speck arrived in Daru to be told the Second World War had begun and he was now an enemy alien. Der sagte, better come up with me to the magistrate. We went to the magistrate, who was very friendly, and he said, well, I don't want to lock you up here after that long journey. I'll send a telegram to Moresby and ask if you're allowed to travel on. About an hour later, the answer arrived. Proceed Thursday Island. Then the magistrate said, do you have a weapon? I said, yes, I have a heavy pistol. Leave it here and travel on immediately. Any minute another telegram might arrive, and then I will have to arrest you. Given that he'd travelled so far, the authorities felt only fair to let him continue into the Torres Strait so that he could finish his voyage in Australian waters. So from Daru, he was able to get to Saibai Island in the Torres Strait and there he was greeted on arrival by a crowd of Saibai Islanders but also three Australian policemen who congratulated him on his trip and reaching Australia after such a long voyage but then had to arrest him because Australia by then was in a state of war with Germany. They were very friendly and very polite and everything. But I was declared a prisoner of war. After seven years of freedom on the waters, he was sent to the mainland and interned at Tatura in Victoria. Well, I think he became extremely frustrated. This played out in endless correspondence with the camp authorities. Which got him precisely nowhere. So, ever the adventurer, he began planning an escape. My name is Frederick Embritz and I am born on the 4th of January 1919. Frederick Embritz was recorded by Penny Cuthbert in 2002. Embritz and a Jewish friend had left Germany the same way Speck had by kayak down the Danube. They ended up in Beirut, were arrested when the war broke out and were sent to Tatura to be interned. That's when I met Oskant. We were talking about boats and all sorts of things. 
And that's when we found out that we had a common interest in kayaks. You know, we mentioned this, like, how did you get away and all this? And we got away the same way. What I gather is he was an adventurer by nature. And they made a pact with each other to escape from Tatura and meet in Sydney outside Randwick Racecourse. We didn't know anything about Sydney, but we knew there's a race course so we made that we meet at the front entrance at the main gate of the race course on Easter Saturday. And Frederick made the rendezvous and Speck didn't. How Speck got out of Tatura was there was a shed where tools were kept and he got inside a large toolbox which was carried out of the camp and from there he was able to eventually get to Melbourne and by then he had civilian clothes, he had a bicycle and there were accounts in Melbourne newspapers to look out for Oscar Speck who was on the run and a description was given of him. Policemen in the Melbourne suburb of Kew spotted him and arrested him and he initially denied being Oscar Speck but under subsequent questioning, fessed up and he was then handed over to military authorities and returned to Tatura camp. And his punishment for escaping was 28 days in solitary confinement. And then he was subsequently transferred to the Loveday internment camps in South Australia. Embritz lived and worked in Sydney as a fugitive, but eventually handed himself in to a police station and they sent him back to Tatura, while Speck spent the next three years at Loveday. The devil only knows what will become of us after this long loss of freedom. So he was in Loveday until January 1946 and then was released. But it was in the camps that he was able to learn how to cut opal. Being interested in geology, his plan was, after release, to try and make a living mining. And literally, within a few days of his release from the Loveday camps, he was mining opal at Lightning Ridge. Extreme heat, really hard work. The hardest thing he did in his life was this digging in Lightning Ridge. He said that's 100 times worse than sitting in the kayak. The reason for learning to cut opal was he'd realised early on in the piece that it was much easier to cut opal than mine it. So that was his strategy to set up a business cutting and selling opals, which is what he did in Sydney. And then he became an opal dealer, a very, very successful opal dealer. If you look at uh, his property in Kilikea, I think he was very, very successful. Speck moved north from Sydney and built a large Italianate house and garden overlooking the ocean at Kilcare. He only went back to Germany once in the 1970s, but didn't like it much. He left Germany behind him. Home was Australia for him especially after he built his house. 
Speck and Embritz did finally reunite in Sydney, and Speck was best man at Embritz's wedding. My wife liked him too. Speck himself never married or had children, though he did have a long-term relationship with a woman named Nancy Steele. Nancy was based in Sydney and once Speck moved to the central coast of New South Wales, she would travel up on weekends to stay with him. And this went on for decades. But she moved in and stayed with him for the last two years of his life because he was not well. By now, Speck's kayaking feat had been almost forgotten. In his last letter to his sister Greta, Speck wrote, I am satisfied, recognition or no recognition. We have a strange situation, one of the most difficult world records to this day, and it will still be in a hundred years, and wholly unknown. But I am satisfied. The war interfered much more with millions of fates. Why shouldn't I be satisfied? Speck died in March 1993, aged 86, after a long illness and was buried in Point Clare Cemetery on the central coast of New South Wales. His partner, Nancy Steele, had a gravestone erected, saying, in loving memory of Oscar Walter Speck, always loved and remembered by Nancy. It seemed no one would ever repeat Speck's epic kayak journey. But then, in 2016... A West Australian woman has reached the final leg of her incredible five-year journey paddling from Germany to Australia in a sea kayak. Sandy Robson is recreating the voyage of a German man who kayaked all the way to Australia in the 1930s. Papua New Guinea correspondent Eric Torchek caught up with Sandy as she set off for the Torres Strait. Even though I'm solo, I've just had this amazing support rallying around me. And uh, that's really made me think about um, how we interact with people and how we treat people and how we welcome people as well. Robson had to skip the Euphrates section because of the war in Syria, but otherwise made it the whole way. I really loved it and you have to to be able to continue for that amount of time. I really love connecting with nature and I like places where nature is big and where I feel small in comparison. And I love the simplicity of travelling in a kayak and just having a few things. And I think that, you know, you really learn a lot about yourself and just really seeing how the people live. Before I began researching this Love Day series and stumbled across his biography and a list of detainees, I'd never heard of Oscar Speck. And it made me wonder why considering his prodigious achievement. The times were against him. There was so much going on. War had been declared. Oscar, oh, he was a bit of a loner. Very intelligent, ambitious and self-centred. Uh, what should we think of him today? Well, he was an amazing man because he's one of the great seafarers that we should celebrate. But in 39, of course, he had to put his head down. They probably didn't want to celebrate an achievement by someone who was considered an enemy. And he made a number of attempts to have his story told. He planned to have a film, a documentary film made, but that never came to fruition. But, you know, he wasn't too fussed about it. 
Nie, die bereut niemals, aber nochmal unternehmen garantiert nicht. <lacht> bereut habe ich das nie. Did I regret my journey? Never. Would I do it again? Not now. And that's the story of Oskar Speck, the first in our Love Day trilogy, here on the History Listen. Our reader was Andreas Sobik. Special thanks to Miff Bryant and Dana Fletcher at the Australian Maritime Museum for letting me into their archives, and to Margot Cuthill for permission to use her unique recording of Oscar Speck. Sound engineering and original music was by Tom Henry, and production was by me, Mike Ladd. I hope you can join me next time for the tragic story of Italian anarchist Francesco Fantin, or download it now wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.